Addressing climate change is for ministers of environment and climate. It's something that green NGOs and environmentalists deal with, right? Well, it's not so simple. Today I talked to Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. Climate change is going to be a central part of the national defense strategy. And in that national security strategy, it will talk about some of these uh, dangers to stability around the world and also dangers to our military installation infrastructure here in the United States and other places overseas. Today I speak to Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. He served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary of the Navy and he's convinced that there's a close connection between providing security and tackling climate change. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Jørgensen. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Today, I'm speaking with Vice Admiral Dennis McGinn. During Vice Admiral McGinn's naval career, he worked as the commander of the 3rd US fleet and later led the development of future American Navy capabilities as the deputy chief of naval operations. He then crowned a distinguished military career by working as President Obama's Assistant Secretary of the Navy from 2013 to 2017. In this capacity, Vice Admiral McGinn led the greening of the U.S. naval installations towards greater resiliency to climate change. He currently serves on the advisory board of the American think tank, the Center for Climate and Security. I talked to Vice Admiral McGinn about the connection between climate change and security. Hello, sir. Hello, Minister. Nice to meet you uh, virtually, thanks to the internet. It's an honor to have you uh, in the podcast. So I want to mention to you, uh, congratulations on your uh, bold decision to get out of the oil business by 2050. Uh, I think that is so good. It reminded me of uh, an expression I've heard in the financial community. Uh, an early yes or no is much better than a long drawn out maybe, and it provides certainty to uh, the whole value chain in the fossil fuel business in, in Denmark. And I think it really uh, will cause the adaptation to uh, new business lines and new value chains uh, much better. Well, thank you so much for for that. I can see already now how it's influencing so many other decisions because once you have decided to go out of one business then all of a sudden you find it easier to get the commitment that you need to start up other parts of uh, our growth strategy. So we see this in connection with our aim to also enhance uh, offshore wind. We will build an artificial island in the North Sea where we will have uh, more than 200 wind turbines connected to it so that it'll serve as a hub for wind to not only our own country but also to other countries in in Europe. So in that sense, it's a new era in, in offshore wind production. Great. We're just starting uh, in the United States to 
get into the offshore wind business, uh, especially on the east coast of uh, the Atlantic coast of the uh, U.S., but also we're uh, working a few uh, early developments in, um, in Hawaii, as well as uh, in off the coast of California. The uh, Hawaii and California uh, offshore wind development programs will rely on a lot of the technology uh, from the floating platforms that have been developed and probably in five to seven years uh, being, they'll be using some very, very large uh, wind turbine generators on the order of uh, 15 megawatts. So it really, really is amazing how the industry is progressing. Well, I will definitely be following that with interest. Uh, we are, are not in, in Denmark experts in the floating platforms, but we we do have some expertise in in uh, other types of, of uh, offshore wind, of course, as as you know, and we we actually have a a quite substantial uh, collaboration with uh, with the government in in Washington with the U.S. administration on how to exchange knowledge on this, and then of course we have uh, Danish companies that are also active in helping make this endeavor a success. Yes, that's great. So, uh, Danny, I read somewhere, and, and it might just be an anecdote, but I read somewhere that George Bush II, he wasn't always convinced that climate change was man-made and something that you should worry about, but he changed his opinion. And the reason why, uh, according to this anecdote, was not his scientific advices, it was the advice from his military advices, because uh, they saw climate change as an increasing uh, threat as and as a, a question that any nation that are also engaged with security policy around the world and not only in, in your own country, as U.S. certainly has been, need to, to address. I, I don't expect you to know whether or not that anecdote is true, but I know that you insist that there is a connection between climate change and security matters. So could you maybe start by elaborating a little bit on that very important point? Sure. Uh, in um, about 2007, the last year of the, uh, or next to last year, of the George W. Bush uh, administration, there was a report published by the uh, Center for Naval Analysis, and it was called uh, Climate Change and the Threat to National Security. It was groundbreaking. It was uh, written by about a dozen uh, retired generals and admirals from the all of the United States military services. And the key takeaway from it was that the effects of climate change, severe weather, drought, uh, flooding, typhoons, and all of the bad things that happen, wildfires, act as uh, a threat multiplier for instability in many, many regions of the world. And <clears throat> what that does is it puts pressure on fragile governments, fragile societies that can fail uh, because of that, that additional pressure and uh, into that uh, vacuum of power uh, and, and the uh, terrible, terrible effects on the societies, all kinds of bad things can happen. Everything from just a large humanitarian assistance, disaster recovery scenario that the U.S. military would be involved in, all the way up escalating to uh, cross-border migration and even uh, to a regional war 
as the nations compete for critical resources. Yes, well, I, I think obviously also we have we've seen examples already now of drought, of floodings, of phenomena connected to the climate that has changed the security situation in countries around the world. Would you say that we've seen actually direct wars or conflicts as a result of this now? Yes, I would uh, point to... Uh, To Syria, as an example, um, the uh, tr- tremendous pressure of some very, very bad years uh, in of uh, agriculture in Syria and, and in that region drove a lot of uh, people uh, towards uh, the cities and and to uh, get away from their traditional lands. It exacerbated the uh, differences between various religious factions, and just was the uh, The spark, if you will, that ignited uh, very, very broad and very, very deadly uh, regional warfare that continues literally to today. The um, refugee crisis that uh, it has caused, it's been uh, probably uh, over a decade, but it it affects not just the uh, folks in, uh, in Syria and in the surrounding countries, but the migration across the Mediterranean Uh, goes all the way to uh, to the Atlantic Ocean. Now you served as as uh, President Obama's Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and I guess in in that job, part of your job description was also to take all of these factors into account in in your analysis. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that work? Yes, um, I was responsible for uh, energy installations and environment. It's uh, not uh, too dissimilar uh, to uh, your your job description, if you will, covering all of those all of those factors. So, um, and the installations, this is a really really important point. I would say that our installations, Navy, in my case, Navy and Marine Corps installations in the United States and around the world, I called them the launch pads from which we launched military capability where it was needed. Uh, to uh, crisis uh, situations, whether it was a regional warfare or even uh, humanitarian assistance disaster relief. But increasingly, we're seeing because of more frequent and large, larger scale climate-driven effects, like hurricanes, especially on the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast, wildfires and drought uh, along the uh, the West Coast, we were seeing a lot of pressure and a lot of damage being caused by hurricanes, for example, uh, the restriction of realistic uh, training for our forces because they couldn't get, go into the field uh, when there was a wildfire danger, a whole host of uh, reasons why our installations were literally under threat and remain under threat to this day by the increasing frequency and intensity of weather events. We had a terrible, terrible year, for example, in uh, California for wildfires and in Colorado as well. We had a very bad hurricane season and uh, the damage that uh, these uh, these phenomena cause is very, very real and it's very, very costly in terms not just of dollars to repair or rebuild, it's certainly a large bill, but also uh, it uh, is a, a an interruption, if you will, of the necessary training that these men and women in uniform need before they go on uh, missions overseas. How do you see the future for for American uh, defense policies 
elaborating as a result of these trends? The, um, the climate change is going to be a central part of the national defense strategy, a uh, written document that uh, is required by our Congress to be provided by the Department of Defense. And in that national security strategy, uh, it will talk about some of these uh, dangers to stability around the world and also dangers to our military installation infrastructure here in the United States and other places overseas. And uh, that will uh, continue a, uh, a cause of what can we do in terms of adaptation, for example, how can we build our bases better? Uh, and how can we uh, adapt to uh, missions that will be uh, more frequent, uh, in, especially in terms of humanitarian assistance and disaster recovery? Additionally, uh, we can, in addition to adaptation, we absolutely in the military have to be a part of mitigation. We need to figure out how to do the mission with much, much less uh, emission of greenhouse gases through uh, energy efficiency, through uh, shifting to biofuels, for example, for, for uh, our, our equipment where we can, where it makes sense, on our installations to deploy more and more clean energy, renewable energy. And I think that that, that has already uh, started. When I was the assistant secretary, we were able to deploy over one gigawatt of renewable energy, uh, not just on bases, but off bases that supplied them. For example, over one third of all of the electricity that is used by our 14 Navy and military installations in California are supplied by a solar power plant in, uh, in Arizona. And uh, that was one of the, the deals that we struck to try to uh, clean up, if you will, our uh, energy supply with much less uh, fossil fuel. When I look at what's taking place in an organization like NATO, our joint alliance, I have to be honest and say I, I don't see that mitigation and adaptation and all the parts of this that you've mentioned, that they are at the heart of what is going on. Is it just because uh, I'm not well informed or do you think there's room for improvement there in NATO? I think there's room for improvement in NATO as an organization, as a critical uh, security organization. And also there's uh, lots of room for improvement in the uh, individual nations that uh, comprise the membership of, of NATO, including the United States. I think that as we uh, realize that truly climate change is an existential threat, we have to do everything about it. It isn't just something that we leave to the technologists or to the utility companies or to others to solve. It has to manifest itself, this, this sense of existential threat in everything that we do. And NATO is an absolutely essential, essential organization to not only adapt their practices or the militaries of, uh, that comprise NATO, but also to, if you will, export the knowledge uh, about how can you prepare your uh, your nation to be more adaptable to uh, increasing weather threats? How can you operate with much, much greater energy efficiency with uh, cleaner sources of, of energy? And I think that this is starting, but we, we still have a long way to go. When people study international politics and then they describe security policies, That's often termed as hard power politics. 
as opposed to soft power politics, which has to do with diplomacy and international rules and institutions and things like that. And usually people in, in uniform would tend to, at least they used to, tend to say that, well, it's not that we don't think climate change and other issues are important, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're in the business of saving nations and saving lives, so that's hard power. But listening to you and your analysis, is it fair to say that maybe that way of looking on international politics and security politics is uh, obsolete? Maybe it doesn't make sense to talk about hard power and soft power anymore. Maybe it's actually connected now. I think it is, and it will be increasingly uh, interwoven, if you will. Uh, soft power is absolutely essential. It's preventative uh, to uh, the scenarios that uh, would require hard power down the road. And I just think that uh, the, just simply the dialogue among nations, uh, not just allied nations, but potential adversaries, we have a common threat. The common threat is climate change. What can we do? And I just think that uh, invites a lot of opportunities for diplomacy, including military to military diplomacy as well. And I, I've always uh, said there's an old uh, advertisement uh, for uh, engine oil uh, it, uh, in the United States. It says, pay me now or pay me later. And you can pay a little bit now in the form of soft power or pay an awful lot, including the loss of lives later on if, uh, if things uh, go down uh, in uh, in hard power terms. I think that's a, a, a very, very good point. Uh, do you think that the new presidency with with uh, President Biden uh, shares your ideas on, on this? And, and will they see also uh, climate change as a security uh, issue so that, that what goes on in, in the Ministry of Defense will be closely linked to what Uh, goes on in in uh, in the Ministry of Energy and and the other ministries that deal with climate change. Very much, very definitely. I'm thinking about getting uh, a T-shirt printed that says "Welcome to the New Age of Reason." <laughs> We are so pleased to have uh, President Biden and his his very very talented, very delicate, dedicated and uh, and experienced team. Uh, one example of this, and it goes right to the heart of this discussion that we're having, Dan, is the uh, designation of former Secretary of State John Kerry uh, to be our climate lead, global climate lead. And he is embedded not in the Department of Energy or Department of Defense or, or uh, State Department. He is part of the National Security Council. And I think that is a very, very strong statement. I know he's already uh, engaging with uh, counterparts in uh, in the various parts of the world, and that will uh, that activity will increase. And I, I think it's really really great. I had the opportunity to work uh, closely with uh, with uh, John Kerry when he was Secretary of State, when I was the Assistant Secretary for Energy and, and Environment, and uh, he really really understands this. Uh, back before. Uh, I became the assistant secretary. I worked with him and other members of the Senate on uh, trying to get some legislation passed through the United States Congress. So he is very, very knowledgeable, very experienced, and very uh, persuasive, if you will. I am so glad that we are back in uh, in the uh, Paris Accord, and I know that uh, we'll have a, a tremendous uh, 
tremendous uh, input to uh, the, the Glasgow uh, COP. I also wanted to mention something that I know you are quite aware of, that despite the lack of leadership at the federal level for the past four years, uh, individual states and individual cities really, really have continued to do a lot of uh, a lot of good things with renewable portfolio standards and and um, rules about uh, low carbon fuel standard, for example, in California. That has made a difference as well. The private sector has really, really stepped up. Large international companies, uh, U.S. companies, have really, really uh, put a lot of effort and money into the development of renewable energy and using renewable energy and energy efficiency standards. So it, it isn't like we've lost four years. Certainly we, we lost an opportunity to make much more progress, but I think we'll be coming back very, very strong. Can I just say how much I agree with you when you said that that uh, the appointment of of uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry as as envoy on climate change is maybe as significant as the fact that the U.S. is now also again entering the Paris Agreement because uh, Secretary uh, Kerry uh, has been for uh, more than two decades now actively engaged in international climate negotiations and he was one of the people instrumental in actually making the Paris Accord. So he is really one of the persons best equipped to make broad alliances uh, globally. So so I'm 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 very, very optimistic on that front. He was actually, by the way, the first guest I had in, in this podcast, uh, Planet A. So I'll I'll invite listeners to to go back and listen to that podcast if they if they want, and I do also agree with you that that even though, of course, uh, we were all said that the U.S. Uh, withdrew from from the Paris uh, Agreement, um, a lot of good things has actually happened in individual states, in uh, uh, cities, in in the U.S., which means you have you're not starting from zero. You do have a platform. Uh, having said that, we are. In a hurry, as a global community, we have about 10 years probably to fundamentally change our societies. And what kind of new technological developments do you see we need to be able? Because we've lost some some speed, we've lost some progress. We haven't we haven't done enough in in the in the years before. So what do we need to do now? I think that uh, as we continue to ramp up the proportion of electricity that is produced by clean sources, solar, wind, and and perhaps increasingly uh, geothermal in, in, in areas that are appropriate. We need to electrify. We need to electrify uh, all of the functions that we possibly can where there's a good business case for using electricity instead of natural gas or oil. Now, one of these, and I think it's going to be the largest impact, will be in transportation. The uh, deployment, scale-up, of electric vehicles of all types, uh, individual passenger cars, buses, trucks, heavy heavy trucks. When you electrify them, you are able to eliminate a tremendous amount of not just global greenhouse gas uh, pollution, but local and regional pollution that will make our cities, for example, so much healthier for, for uh, inhabitants. And I just think that that uh, factor of electrification It's not a new technology per se, but I think that as we get more and more 
battery technology that produces uh, more energy density. We can deploy that in many, many ways. I think the, uh, the development uh, and deployment of, of green hydrogen, hydrogen that can be produced uh, without uh, producing greenhouse gases and substituting that where it makes sense, where there's a, a technical and a financial business case for natural gas, I think is going to be another big factor. One that uh, I think is somewhat controversial in certain parts uh, parts of our country, certainly, and, and around the world, is uh, nuclear power. Uh, we need to at least take a look at, is there an opportunity for us to, uh, to uh, develop and deploy uh, small modular reactors, for example? It's not, uh, as I like to say, there is no silver bullet, but we have a lot of silver buckshot that we can use with investments in a lot of different technologies. So we need to look across the board and not wait for some magical um, technology to come, come along. The other aspect, and it probably is the most fundamental, is energy efficiency. We need to figure out how we can uh, heat our homes, cool our homes, how we can uh, move uh, goods around and goods and people around, how we can perform uh, commercial and industrial functions uh, with less energy, but with a, a better outcome in terms of uh, reducing greenhouse gases. I want to get uh, get back to the question of uh, climate change and security, because there's one issue that we haven't covered. When temperature increases, it gets warmer, ice melts in the Arctic, for instance, the geography changes. So therefore, also the power structures uh, changes. How do you see climate change affecting the relationship between the, the major powers in, in the world in that aspect? I think it will. I mean, the, a case in point, of course, is what's going on in the Arctic. Uh, we will see probably within the next uh, 10 years, certainly 15 years, regular um, uh, ice-free passage uh, through the so-called what we call the Northwest Passage of the Arctic. There'll be a lot of competition for uh, potential resource extraction up there. I hope it's not uh, oil and gas, uh, but I think that uh, that that will be one area of, um, of, of concern. I think also uh, rising sea levels uh, can it, is a very, very uh, significant concern, especially in certain parts of the world where there isn't a lot of elevation. And you combine the uh, sociological effects of increasing urbanization. More and more people are moving to the cities. More and more of those cities are on the uh, on coastal waters and their infrastructure will be uh, greatly, greatly affected by rising sea level. We have uh, that case in uh, uh, an area of great naval activity, US naval activity down in the tidewater area of Virginia. Nor Norfolk uh, Naval Base is one of the largest in the world and it is affected even today on what we call uh, sunny day flooding because of uh, of uh, moon tides, but as in we increase the sea level, and uh, especially when we see increasing amounts of uh, quantities of, of storms, whether they're northeasters or whether they're hurricanes, the, uh, the tidal surge that can be created will flood critical infrastructure, could cut, cut out power. So 
we need to really, really be prepared for that, not just in the United States, but uh, around the world. And this is where, going back, Dan, to uh, our discussion about uh, soft power, I think that, uh, you know, deploying civil engineers and having, uh, having scenario-based uh, exercises with, uh, with allies and, and other nations can help us to, first of all, let's determine through analysis where the greatest problems are going to occur and prioritize uh, the civil engineering that must be done to either uh, increase the protection of critical infrastructure or actually move uh, critical functionalities out of areas that are prone to flooding. So now you have made us wiser on how the thinking is in the U.S. as as a superpower. How do you think things look from Moscow or in Beijing? Are leaders also in those countries increasingly seeing climate change as a as a matter of security? I think they do. Uh, I think uh, talking about uh, Russia first. Um, Clearly, I mean, you think of the vastness of uh, Siberia, all of the, the infrastructure that and people that live in that, that very, very large country. And when you think about um, melting uh, tundra, uh, permafrost and, and ice, that is going to uh, cause a lot of internal migration. It'll cause a lot of uh, lost infrastructure. So uh, Russia has to be very, very concerned with uh with what is happening in, in their country. Russia has had uh, several years over the past decade where they've had terrible, terrible outcomes of their agricultural business, the production of, uh, of wheat and, and, and other grains because of, uh, of heat waves or, or droughts in certain areas. So uh, Russia has to be, has to be uh, concerned about climate change as well. And they have to be part of the, uh, part of the solution. For China, same type of uh, phenomena going on, the uh, especially related to uh, severe weather events, typhoons, for example, uh, that that have affected China for literally centuries, but increased uh, intensity, increased frequency, flooding along their coasts, uh, high high temperatures that uh, literally uh, affect the uh, the health of uh, large populations losses of uh, functionality of um, key industries in China. So I don't want to sound too optimistic. I, I am an optimist by nature, but I think that this idea of a common enemy, climate change, can help create opportunities for us to come together with nations like Russia and China and to uh, look for areas that we can actually cooperate instead of compete. Uh, one example uh, using the United States and, um, and China in terms of uh, let's go ahead and look for opportunities to co-develop, if you will, green technologies uh, so that it isn't uh, simply a, a game of competition, but so much more cooperation could, could ensue. The past four years in particular have not been good for uh, U.S.-Chinese relations. And there certainly are a lot of uh, points of controversy, if you will. But I think that uh, by taking that view, this is a common threat to all of the world to, and certainly to our nations. So what can we do to adapt and what can we do to uh, mitigate the effects of climate change 
over the next uh, several decades. Well, it's an excellent point. That's nothing that connects people, individuals or countries like a common enemy, a common threat. And if we believe that we have a situation now where it is commonly acknowledged across the world that climate change is really a threat, then that can do great things for our, our collaboration. I, I, I do agree with you on that. Also, I think it's it's also an uncontroversial point to make that looking back in history, when we've succeeded in making peace in regions of the world, interdependencies within countries has been the strongest force. So if you make countries interdependent, for instance, like we've done in the European Union, the EU started as a coal and steel union, tying France and Germany together. That has created peace. Now, if we know for a fact that this planet can only really survive, at least as a relatively wealthy planet with relatively high living standards, if we do something about climate change, if we all acknowledge that, and we also all acknowledge that that means we need common solutions, then really all of a sudden, instead of having a very bleak future perspective in which climate change will create more conflict, more mitigation, scarcity in resources, all of these things that can spark wars. And instead of that, maybe climate change, paradoxically, can actually lead to more peace. Absolutely. I, I agree with you entirely, Dan. I uh, think about it uh, this way. If you just look at the number of uh, jobs that are associated with fossil fuel extraction, transport, storage use, and you compare that over, say, the past five years, and then projected in over the next 10 years to, say, 2030, the number of jobs and, and value chains that are just waiting to be created uh, related to clean energy is, is enormous. You mentioned uh, the uh, creation of an island in, uh, off of Denmark uh, to produce five gigawatts of, uh, of power. It's just the number of jobs to do that is going to make the number of jobs in uh, the oil industry in uh, in your nation very very seem very small because it is and it's going to continue to diminish yet these uh, i've described it this way climate change is like uh, bad bad uh, threatening uh, wrapping paper and you take that wrapping paper off and inside are these wonderful gifts of of job creation and and economic opportunity and quality of life increases. I just think that uh, you're, you're so right that this is an opportunity for us to uh, cooperate and uh, to improve uh, life for everybody, uh, all the citizens of the world. With that positive comment, but Danny, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I hope to to meet you in 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 person some someday when when we don't have this pandemic that's preventing us from traveling. I I look forward to that, Dan, and uh, thank you for your leadership, for the leadership of uh, your prime minister and your colleagues, other other ministers. Uh, in uh, in showing the way to a, uh, a a much cleaner fossil fuel free future, and the commitments, the hard commitments that you have made to not only start leaving the old, but to embrace the new in terms of uh, technology is really really inspirational. So thank you so much. We we so value 
uh, our uh, our relationship, not just uh, as a NATO partner, but uh, in a bilateral sense with uh, with Denmark. So it's really good, and 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 I I have not heard any any uh, news from the Biden administration that they want to purchase Greenland. <laughs> well, that's good news, also. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.